The crowds had grown over the past couple weeks as word got out what was happening. It was new, it was different, and it was connecting with the people. That was new in and of itself. People were responding to this. People were coming in from 50 miles. Now, 50 miles doesn't feel like a lot in a car. That's round trip three times from here to Lancaster City. They weren't driving my beautiful Prius. They were doing it on foot. Even better gas mileage. But 50 miles. 50 miles on foot, on horseback, if they had it, or in caravans to hear and experience this new teacher. And miracles were happening. It wasn't just the miracles that were making a difference, but that could be enough. Some people couldn't speak, couldn't see, had superhuman strength. Don't doubt me in this moment, as, as when they tried to bind these people with ropes, it was impossible. These strange behaviors, unexplainable, out of this world, from some other dimension, creepiness to them. And their friends, the friends of these people, were bringing him, bringing them to this new teacher. Families had children that had never walked paralyzed since birth, where mom and dad just prayed as they saw cousins, dear Lord, may my child run and play with the others in this community. Would I one day hear their laughter as they're with others? May they be able to race there, there, there were those in severe pain, constant breath-stealing pain. Those that didn't care anymore about the heat of the climate or how their, their clothes stuck to them through their sweat. Because all they were doing was looking for that, that split moment where if they held their breath just right, they had a second of relief. It wasn't just those with physical pain either that were going to visit this new teacher. Those with internal torment wanted to speak with him. Husbands and wives approaching him, Rabbi, we want children. We've been trying for years. We don't know what to do. Friends and family keep asking us about it. Maybe next month, they say to us. Teacher, I am so, so angry I don't fail. But this isn't working with my wife. What's wrong with me? What's wrong with us? Are we defective? Inadequate? But this teacher was something else. He was new. He was different. And there was hope now. The strange, otherworldly signs of demon possession removed as the demons were commanded to leave. Paralyzed children, walking, running, tripping. Who knew that tripping could cause so much joy? Physical pain, gone. Breath wasn't used to control pain. 
It was used for laughter. And the internal debilitating torment released into pasture as this miracle worker, this teacher, this rabbi would lean in, embrace them, and gave a word just loud enough for their ears to the ones that needed it. This had been going on for weeks. Those that were healed were talking. They were telling others. But the skeptics who didn't believe it was happening, who was showing up, they were becoming witnesses and giving the same story. We don't know what's going on, but people's lives are changing. And the crowds were growing. They were getting big. Some thought they were just becoming cumbersome, but not to everyone. Simon called Peter. Andrew, Simon's brother, James and John were seeing all these miracles. These four had begun an official followership in just the last couple weeks. This miracle worker that was shaking things up had called out to them with invitation, come follow me. And they responded, now, thankful to my parents, they have taught me that all invitations, let this be a point for today, all invitations deserve a response. I heard that. And actually, invitations ask for them most often. It's the RSVP at the end. So, hey, bonus points if you know the French phrase that RSVP stands for. Put a plus five on the back of your bulletin. <laughs> Invitation is opportunity. And we, as those who are invited, get to determine whether we are involved or not. These four men knew not to miss this party, this movement. Something was going to happen, and it was going to be big. The crowds were getting larger. We don't know actual numbers, but there comes a point where a group gets so large, you can't navigate around them. There is no way around them. You simply have to push your way through, hoping that the rest of your family doesn't get separated. You can't manage or corral anymore just because of the sheer numbers. And there's momentum with numbers like that. A critical mass has been hit. Jesus. Jesus from Nazareth. The one who had been teaching in synagogues. Casting out demons. The healer of these people. Looking individuals in the eye to meet their hurt where it was. Looks up to see this critical mass. He goes a couple steps up a nameless mountain gets some beeswax he got from John the Baptist. This is extra biblical at this point. Fixes his mustache. You can't talk with mustache in your mouth. He takes a seat, waves Simon, Andrew, James, and John over, and he starts to teach the crowd. We're in Matthew 5 at this moment. Ushers have Bibles for you if you don't have one. Please, as they walk down the aisles, you just raise your hand. I honestly make it a habit every Sunday to raise my hand. It is okay to grab a Bible if you don't have one. We're going to be in Matthew 5, and Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And chapter 5 is on page 677. And I want you to join me in the book of Matthew today. When I think of strategies for managing a crowd... I don't think, you know what would be best for crowd control? Lecturing. They'll listen. But WWJD, let's go back to the 90s. 
Jesus decides to lecture. So, like a boss, Jesus annihilates any seminary pattern that has ever existed about how to preach. He didn't bring three points and a benediction. He rocked a 25-point sermon and concluded with a story about the dangers of being a beach house in a hurricane. The great children's philosopher sung this, uh, Salty, if you're not familiar. You've got to build your house upon a rock, make a good foundation on a solid spot. Oh, the storms may come and go, but the peace of God you will know. Jesus' conclusion to all this was, put my words into practice. All 25 points. How does the crowd respond? You don't have to turn there, but immediately following this Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 28, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at this teaching. Shock, amazement, who is this man? What is he doing? Because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. When he taught, there was such authority, people changed what they did and how they responded. Now, today, I know some people have limited attention spans. I can recognize that. I have one, too. So if you aren't sure what you can take from this time, here's permission. You can take the Bible that they gave to you. Take it. Approval, permission, it's not against the rules now. And then camp out on just three pages of the Bible. Page 677, 678, and 679, the Sermon on the Mount. Some of you, this happened last, last service, some of you were flipping to the back of your bulletins already to go, Wait, what, aren't we in Acts? Isn't this the way? Do me a solid, stick with me for a time. If you aren't there already, go to Matthew chapter 5, page 677. This is where the Sermon on the Mount begins. And the first nine points of his 25-point sermon, we call the Beatitudes. That's verses 3 through 11. For many of us, even in my life, we memorized them as children. If you didn't memorize them, we at least recognize them. Blessed are these people, because of this. Blessed are these people, this is theirs. Incredibly simple. The Beatitudes lay out much of Jesus' core teachings with a minimal number of words. This is like the cliff notes of all of his teachings in Scripture. Recognize it for that. Let's look at them. Chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit. It's about this inner attitude and openness and receptivity to the Lord. When you're in this form, you're empty. You can be filled. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You're ready to receive. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourning is about vulnerability 
where we reach out toward what we have lost but still love. Again, mourning is about vulnerability, where we reach out toward what we have lost but still love. Now, a time of mourning for me was the departure from my life in China, a decade. Rhythms are created. A whole life is created. Children are born. It's where home is. The weight of home. That word means something to people. And when the Lord called us away from that, and we came here, we had to recognize what we lost. A couple weeks ago, Dr. Sherman, Dr. Ed, said the safest place to be, well, he addressed the idea that the safest place to be is in the center of God's will. And as my wife and I have reflected on how this is the place here in Lancaster County that we are supposed to be in those early days, I'm not sure how safe it was. Every morning we'd wake up based on when we arrived and the entire outside was fumigated. I don't mean with poison, unless, of course, you consider fertilizer poison. Hooey, my goodness. And with two children with asthma, you wonder, how will this fertilizer impact our lives? <laughs> Verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Please don't see blessed are the people who are not confident. I've had a song, Demi Lovato, stuck in my head all week. What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being? What's wrong with being confident? Uh-huh. <laughs> and I would say absolutely nothing. But it can go too far. Another way to say blessed are the meek are blessed are those that have tamed the wild, barbarian instincts that destroy. They will inherit the earth. Those who have given those things up. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I'm going to come back to this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. There's a, a bit of commerce going on right here, some exchange happening. You give mercy, you receive mercy. Thank you, Lord, for that lesson in my life. Number eight, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. I'm going to share something about our family. Feel free to judge us for it. We try hard to be a 100% juice family. We're those people. We look, we, we look at the back to see what's in it, 100% juice. Now, um, we're not uh, Pharisees about it because we still get the 0% juice lemonade when we go to restaurants. How can there be 0% juice lemonade? I don't know. But I'm not going to argue with my kids in those moments. But 100% juice is pure. It's just juice from the fruit. It's pure. Blessed are the pure in heart. It's undiluted. Blessed are those that are undiluted, single-minded, and devoted to a single purpose. They will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 9. 
For they will be called children of God. So far we've tamed our destructive instincts. We've unified our heart purpose by being pure. And now we have the privilege to pass peace on. We have become men and women of peace and we are called children of God. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's a Another way to put it, blessed are those who have such perspective on life, meekness, openness to God, who pass peace unto others, that when they are persecuted, their mind is on the grand story, not just this circumstance, but the grand story that's being written that we are fortunate to be part of. That grand story is about the kingdom of heaven. Verse 11, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I like this long vision for heavenly connection. People will insult you. They will hurt you. See that as a promise, sadly. See that as a promise. They'll lie about you because of your journey with Christ. But don't be afraid. This has happened before with the prophets. And your reward is in heaven. On a serious note, sometimes your reward is here on earth. 2 Kings 2 gives us the story of Elisha going up to Bethel. He's insulted, he's persecuted, he's attacked by this vicious gang of the, what I'm guessing is 10-year-olds. 42 of them. I'm not making this up, y'all. This is scripture. We're a scripture preaching church. Check it out. It's 2 Kings 2. Check it out later. And these 10-year-olds, 42 of them, are yelling, get out of here, baldy. That's right. They went after his hair. (laughs) You can see why this story holds such importance in my life. (laughs) Pastor Ken's life or Pastor Dima's life. Get the response to this. After yelling, get out of here, Baldy, two bears come out of the woods and maul them. (laughs) End of chapter, no explanation. (laughs) I mean, Jesus takes this stuff seriously. Bears came out to defend the bald, the prophets. (laughs) Oh, I was trying to encourage people. I'm going to send bear mauling pictures to Ken and Dima, <laughs> be encouraged. <laughs> Unbelievable. Hey, side note, uh, we asked earlier, talked about the 90s, WWJD. Uh, get this, most of the Beatitudes are 140 characters or less. This literally answers the question, what would Jesus tweet? During the Sermon on the Mount, he's starting, Peter's holding Jesus as his smartphone. I got this. This is good. This is good. Send. That's good. Switches to his own phone, retweets. He'll be first on that. 140 characters. If you're not sure you can be encouraging with social media, know that you can do it. Beatitudes. And let's get back to verse 6. I'm going to camp out there for a minute. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. 
This is what will send us into Acts. But we have to ask the question, what is righteousness? What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? Now, um, I'm a high justice person. I've learned that about my personality. And when I see something wrong, it needs to be addressed. Says Jeff. Uh, I was driving down the street not too long ago during a storm. A tree fell into the road. And my family, I think we were driving to get ice cream. But we see Jeff in the road with the chainsaw trying to clear the road. What I love about my wife and my family is that we got to stop. we got to go help them. That's what, that's what high justice does to some people. You have to address whatever is going on to make it right. That... It's kind of a problem when you combine it with my personality. Usually, it means that I am the one who has to address the problem. It can get you into trouble. Uh, your parents have probably told you, or someone in your life has told you, to uh, pick your battles well. I am still learning that on a regular basis. And I see actually a sign of maturity in me when I don't engage in those battles. There's a problem, though. Justice is very black and white. That's okay. Justice is black and white. It's right and wrong. And there is definitely a relationship between justice and righteousness. Righteousness, however, is too limited when we define it purely as being moral, behaving correctly, or as a synonym for virtue. One more time. Righteousness is too limited when we define it purely as being moral, behaving correctly, or as a synonym for virtue. I feel like it allows us to put God in a box of rules. He now fits my formula. If I do this, God will do this, and now I'm in control. It doesn't address a relationship with our Creator. I say that righteousness is to be directly connected to God through our pursuit of God. Righteousness is about being anchored in the aliveness of his holy presence. Think about the holy experience of God when Moses encountered the burning bush in Exodus 3. Quick summary. Moses sees a bush on fire, but it's not burning up. He's curious about this, so he goes to check it out. And a conversation starts between him and God. And it starts to get pumping. Moses eventually covers his face to the intensity of these conversations. And he's saying, who am I, Lord, that I would do what you're asking? God's response is, I'll be with you. This isn't really subtle instruction. It's, it's fierce, and the connection is strong. They journey together. God pursued him, and he pursued God. In the book of Acts, do you remember Paul's conversion story? It was an intense, interpersonal, relational connection. He already thought he was righteous. When he talks about being a Pharisee, it's not shamefully talking about it. When he talks about that, it gives him favor with those around him. He defined righteousness before by living as a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, studying under Gamaliel. He already 
thought he was righteous. It was the connection with the resurrected Jesus that changed his righteousness formula forever. And do you hunger for this kind of connection with God? Do you thirst for it? Do you yearn for something that is bound in relationship? Blessed are those that hunger and thirst to find their life and aliveness in the pursuit and relationship with God. They will be filled. We're going to go to Acts 24. Before we go there, uh, pray with me. Father in heaven, as a church, I so deeply desire that as we read scripture, it would change us forever. Would it not just be words on a page on a Sunday morning? Would we hunger for this relationship with you? Would we see your word as a way to understand who you are? Father, would you bless our time? Would you remove any callousness we might have in our hearts that prevents us from hearing the important truth about what's going on in our lives and how that may be a front to the gospel? Prepare our minds, prepare our hearts, and prepare our feet. In your name I pray. Amen. We're going to be in Acts 24. That's page 778 if you grabbed a Bible from the ushers. Acts 24. While you're turning there, I want to talk about the end of Acts 23. A plot was out there to murder Paul. But once a Roman centurion gets word of this, Paul gets protected as a Roman citizen. So this Roman centurion puts together an overnight prisoner escort of 470 people to get Paul safely to the governor. Governor Felix, 470 people to protect one man. It is in the presence of Felix, the governor, that it is believed a fair trial can be had. Now, they arrive safely, no drama, and soon enough, charges are firmly brought against Paul. During the prosecutor's opening statement, the prosecutor says that Felix, being of, of good mind, sound mind, solid mind, if he were to examine Paul, he would so clearly see what a scourge Paul is to this place. Paul represents himself. Please do not let that be prescriptive about what you should do in the court of law here. Please don't represent yourself. Get some help, please, says the lawyer. Paul represents himself and gives a solid defense. Incredibly solid. We see in Acts 24, verse 22. You can follow along with me. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Verse 24. Several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, 
that's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. A number of things jumped out to me as I was looking at this scripture. Here they are. Number one, Felix knew about the way. That's the title of this entire series. This was a movement that was happening. It was changing things. This wasn't just about a Messiah. It was so much more. And Felix knew about it. It says he was well acquainted with the way. Number two, final judgment wouldn't be decided until Roman commander Lysias arrives. Lysias never arrives, never shows up. Number three, Paul is held captive. He's still under guard, but he has some freedoms and his friends could visit. Remember though, he's he's still captured. He can't leave freely. Number four, Felix and his Jewish wife, Drusilla, meet with Paul. They want to know more. What other stories does he have? In response to all this, number five, Felix is afraid. But his interest is piqued. He still wants to talk. And finally, for two years they talk, but there's no scripture to say that Felix ever changed. But for two years they heard this story. For two years he meets with Paul frequently and talks with him. Following a pattern of Paul's life on how, how confident he delivers truth, I believe that Paul talks with Felix each time about faith in Jesus Christ, righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. That is a solid four-point presentation. I bet it got even better, too. In good storyteller fashion, the more we tell the same story, the clearer the message gets the better the punchlines, the more succinct it gets as you narrow the story down to its core message. But Paul was already good at this. He defended himself in Roman court. He already knew what the core was. I just imagine it getting better and better. In in verse 26, in response to Paul's message about Jesus Christ, Righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. Felix sends him away, but we know he's going to invite him back. He says so. It also says that at the same time, Felix was hoping for a bribe. I want to make you all really comfortable right now. Um, I thought I might talk politics for a moment. So, Bribes. It would be really easy to simplify Felix in this moment. But if we simplify Felix to a man that is only interested in money, it makes a two-dimensional character. And as human beings, as people who have been created in God's image, we are not two-dimensional. There is depth. There is emotion. There is much to us as his creation. We make two-dimensional characters all the time. We do. We do it with our own government officials. They're all in it for the money. Bunch of crooks. 
get this. This is phenomenal as I was looking at some history. The first law, the first law criminalizing electoral bribery in Rome was 181 B.C. I would like to believe that the law was in response to something. 181 B.C. Additional laws existed for elected officials already holding office. Now, officially, bribery is illegal. Does it still happen? Think about whatever you might do, how you grant favor to this person, you do that, how it might make things a little bit easier for you. It's sometimes part of the way things work, to get processes moving, to grease the wheels. I am not saying that bribery is okay. Let that be clear. Set it with the microphone. That makes it official. But across the world, it can be completely culturally acceptable and still illegal. Completely culturally acceptable, but still illegal. Kind of a strange virtue, don't you think? When we focus on Felix possibly being a dirty politician, we might miss something. I like to imagine Felix sitting with Drusilla, his wife, explaining to her what the docket was like that day. And he explains to her the case with Paul. It's so clear. He's innocent, Drusilla, but there's nothing I can do about it. My constituents within my area, if I set him free, we're done. This whole local government is done. That's not the way things work. But you know... How can I set him free? Well, with a bribe, a culturally acceptable but illegal thing, I can set Paul free. Here's opportunity for me to set Paul free. Now, Drusilla wants to meet him. Drusilla wants to hear him talk about the way. So Felix sets up a time. He sets it up to be out of the courtroom so things could be a little more personal in the environment, way less official, softer, and personal got for, for, for Drusilla. Drusilla was a Jew. She's been looking for a Messiah. Drusilla as a Jew, Dr- sorry, Drusilla as a Jew is told in these moments that the awaited Messiah has come. Then speaking to the two of them, he addresses righteousness, where they find their life and their aliveness. What do they hunger and thirst for, and does it bring satisfaction? I see Drusilla and Felix making eye contact, wondering, what does Paul know about us? And then he gets to self-control. Josephus, have you heard that name before? Josephus is a Jewish historian who also writes about Felix and Drusilla. Drusilla was gorgeous. Gorgeous. And taken by her incredible beauty, Felix, already in his second marriage, works to convince Drusilla to leave her husband, who's a king. He is successful, if that's what you want to call it. And she leaves her husband to be with Felix. Self-control. Taming the destructive. Taming the wildness that only consumes and destroys. Now, there was already an, an idea of judgment to come 
in Greek thought, so this wasn't fully new to them. But when combined with righteousness, self-control, and a resurrected Messiah, a response is demanded. So Paul invites them to follow. And how does that sit with them? What was Felix's response? Fear. And maybe later. Fear. Are you afraid of the truth? When someone brings you the truth, how does it hit you? When my wife says to me that I'm being a jerk to my children, it's true. (laughs) But in that moment, in that heat, in that high justice, this kind of personality person, I'm not ready for rebuke. But it needs to stop. And so a simple word as, that's enough. Nick, don't be a jerk. It's truth. And it's an affront to everything I'm doing in that moment. It doesn't taste good. It demands you go another direction. That is an invitation to change behavior. It's an invitation to go someplace else. You get afraid of it. And you decide to change only when it's convenient. So these meetings continued for two years. Each time, Paul putting out the story. Jesus the Messiah, righteousness, self-control, judgment to come, invitation to follow. And Felix RSVP'd. His silence, although officially in our modern day does not count as a response, his silence for two years was, I will not be following. When you receive an invitation, send back a response. Tell them whether or not you'll be part of the festivities. We need to respond the same way when Jesus invites us into relationship with him. I think for many Christians, the non-Christians around them are very similar to Felix and Drusilla. I don't mean scandalous trickery to leave a spouse. I mean, they are already well acquainted with the way. They've been here for Christmas. They've been here for Easter. And amen and welcome every single time. But they've been here. They're familiar with it. You know, they're also familiar with it because they still get to relate with other Christians. They get to watch other Christians. Listen to other Christians. They're familiar with it. Something doesn't sit right. Christians in the room, how do you respond to Scripture? How are you responding to truth? How do you respond to the teachings of Jesus? How do you respond to his invitation to righteousness? At the end of our services, we have placed a song. It's been going on for some time now. This is not a final performance. It's not buffer time to find your keys. It's actually opportunity to respond. The word has gone out. And for some of you, you're thinking, bogus. No, this is just Nick's interpretation of events. But the word has gone out. How does righteousness sit with you? How 
is something in affront to what your life looks like. Are you afraid? Are you waiting for a more convenient time? This is time to respond. Hey, crossover. Talking to crossover. You're about to leave for beach camp. Yuck it up. That'll work. That's good. This is opportunity in this time now to consider the Beatitudes, the Sermon on the Mount, what is righteousness, to prepare to take that with you as you leave for days. A response is for everybody. Everybody needs to respond. In this response time, you can write down ways staff can be praying for you. We pray for you daily. You can read through the Beatitudes again. You can reflect on your notes in the bulletin. You can pray with people underneath the cross or the empty tomb. This is time for you to respond. As you ardently pursue relationship with God, like obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires that you formerly had in ignorance. Instead, as he who called you is holy, be holy yourselves. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.